Welcome everyone to tonight's 2017 wrap-up debate for process, uh, ARCUP debate. Um, we'd like to start by acknowledging the Yulkulet Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yulkulet Willem are part of the Boonarung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders past, present and to the future. We'd like to welcome you this evening. This is the very first process event that has not been held at Loop Bar for 15 years. Um, it's, so it's pretty exciting to have this first time collaboration with M Pavilion and we've definitely learned a lot from the process and I think it will instill some new ideas for 2018. Um, tonight we have a debate with, which has started on the premise of essentially when Rem and David G. Nodden were in town and there was the opening of this very M Pavilion and the nature with which we were all very starry-eyed and very excited to have Rem in our midst and kind of the conversations that ensued around that and what it's like having um, a pavilion such as M Pavilion designed by such an international and recognised star architect. And so the conversations that occurred at that time um, and around, you know, standing outside or, you know, in dinners after when Rem presented, very much kind of niggled at this idea to unpack the question of does Melbourne need star architecture? And so we've come to the position where we've got six, six speakers um, who are going to unpack this topic this evening and debate it. Um, we have on our very, well, my very fast right, we have the Yes Camp, which is Joachim Klaus. He's an associate director at, at, um, at Bait Smart, and there goes my list. Um, we have Nicole Allen, who is a former associate of Shop Architects, came here um, to work on the Pants Scraper project and is now a senior designer at Grimshaw. We have Mark Ragged, known as ARM, director, uh, ARM Architecture Co-Director. The infamous Don Bates, um, Director of Lab Architecture. <laughs> Uh, and Chair of Architectural Design at MSD. We've actually put him in the no camp just to kind of provide a potential bit of spiciness and uh, controversy. Oh, sorry. What? Oh, you guys want to swap? No, you can swap later. Um, we also have Sarah Lynn Reese, a Palawa woman descending from the Plangemurania people of northeast Tasmania. She's also Charles Perkins Scholar, um, did her Masters at Cambridge University, Director of... Indigenous Architecture and Design, IADV, and you probably may have seen her last night. There was a, an event on. Um, no, well, I won't manage, mention the manager part. And <laughs> Dr. Jan van Skyk, Director at MVS and Architects and Curator of Writing and Concepts and Lecturer at RMIT. We're going to start this deba debate by allowing each of the speakers to um, provide their stance or opinion about this topic and what it means to them. And then we're going to jump into Q&A. By the way, I'm Lisa Gersman. I'm a co-curator of Process. I always forget to introduce myself. This is Sarah Mayer. She's jumping on board to co-host this evening. And there's also um, a number of Process team members out there. We have peers taking photos. We have Jill, who is the editor of the publication that we're putting together. We have Nina Reed, who does the graphic design. So all the fancy schmancy stuff that goes out. Oh, Nina. Uh, we have Vaughan, who I'm not quite sure where he... Oh, no. 
right next to Jill, um, who's been doing the recordings. And everyone has put in a huge amount of effort to get this event to where it is. So we're excited to see what the speakers have to say. So, a minute each, starting with Joachim. Thank you, Lisa. Um, minute each, so we've got to, got to hurry through this. Um, perhaps we start with the question, what is actually a stark, a stark architect? Uh, is it an international architect? Is it a group of international architects coming to Melbourne and, and offering their understanding of what an appropriate design response is to a question? Um, for, as far as I'm concerned, I think uh, I did, did uh, identify myself as a critical yes. Um, I think we all can, can learn from any architect that is putting a proposal forward. Uh, we have to be critical about what has been put forward and uh, whether it will enhance the city, does it enhance the way we live? Does it enhance how the city will move forward? Um, so a yes for, for star architecture, yes for international architects, um, but perhaps with a bit of a filter on top. Um, microphone. Uh, yeah, I think my initial read of the prompt was a critical one in the, in the lack of definition of what is a star architect versus what is an international architect. And I think... Um, a star architect is a pretty recent invention, and um, it has something to do with the rise of the commercialization of architecture. Because you know, for many years, architects have been famous, but only recently have they been branded. Um, so, I think what I'd love to tease out today is um, what is the difference between an international architect who comes and brings um, new and fresh ideas and a star architect? who's maybe coming from a sort of financial motivation or being brought by people who are interested in a brand rather than um, a bespoke solution to a problem unique to a place. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, yes. uh, well, yes. fuck off, we're full, isn't it? Um, oh, hang on, sorry. That, that totally came out wrong. Um, what I meant to say was that, of course, we need more architects in um, Melbourne. We're the world's most livable city, and um, more architects is only going to make it more livable. Um, so more is good, right? <laughs> okay, I'm going to... Uh, I'm, I'm in the no camp. Uh, so all of my points are about no. So... Um, <laughs> a lot of crossing out on this. Uh, no, no, no. This is just a, this is a critique of the statement. So the first is, no, there is no such thing as a star architecture or star architecture or star architect. Uh, and then in the statement, it talks about um, the advocacy for the profession and tenacity for fostering the vernacular. No, there is no such thing as the vernacular. Uh, the city, Melbourne, is known as the cultural hotbed of Australia with rich and impassioned debate about its evolving identity. So if it has an evolving identity, that means there is no way in which it can only remain yes or no. Uh, then Peter Corrigan and Robin Boyd were pioneers, blah, 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 sensibility for the local. Uh, and there is no such thing as the local, certainly for 99% of the people in this room, because none of us are local. Um, critical debate, blah, blah, blah. During the 80s and 90s, aspirations and appetites by clients for the architectural elite drew the attention, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
well, I don't believe there's any architectural elite, uh, and certainly Melbourne, compared to Sydney, has not been very active in supporting a notion of an elite uh, and such. Uh, further down, uh, does an increased engagement of international architects in the local arena somehow distort the cultural production? How can it distort the cultural production when cultural production is about production, not about... It assumes there's one kind of cultural production in the way it's written here, when cultural production is about the possibilities, not so therefore it can't distort it. Uh, in short... Are prestigious international firms usurping or supporting? Uh, I don't think it's either way. Uh, any more than, you know, uh, we... I, I, to go back to, to, to Mark's point, uh, I, I guess it came up just from what he said. I think, yes, to star... I mean, again, I dispute the word star architects or star architecture, but if we're going to have some, then why not say that they come from Melbourne? I don't think we have star architects in Australia in general. Um, that term tends to be applied to international architects and I don't think that's something that we've created. Um, but at the same time, star architecture then comes with a star architect which then implies a singular figure, which then implies an ego in architecture which doesn't support the fact that actually to get anything off the ground it requires a hell of a lot of people to make it happen. Um, I mean, there are many things to say but I'll leave it there for now. <laughs> Um, having just visited Barcelona, which I'm sure many of you have, a city which has a very strong and unique architectural culture around which its identity is based, the first thing I must do is put on my father's hat and say that a city has an opportunity, any city has an opportunity to develop its own identity and its own culture around its architectural language and its architectural culture. And um, any inclusion of a star architect in a city brought in from the outside that doesn't partake actively in that culture um, is damaging to that city's um, potential to develop its own architectural culture and its own identity around that. But um, <clears throat> although this is confusing to me, I am actually not my father, so I must add something else. And what I will add is, um, Lisa, thank you very much for doing an um, acknowledgement to country. Um, it was interesting on the opening night that, um, or in one of the debates that followed, the, the issue of um, cultural reference and acknowledgement um, in the, the design of this pavilion was raised and Rem Kulhar said something like, we just need to get over that and move on with it and get on with things. And I think inviting an architect from a culture that is... Um, one of the most famous colonising cultures in the world, to design a building which is purely about architecture, to then ignore the cultural responsibility that architecture has and to say to the traditional owners of this land, um, their elders past, present and future, what a terrible and disgusting insult. Thank you for that, Jan. Um, going on from that, can you... Sorry. Uh, maybe... Should this pavilion be designed by an international architect or a local architect? Well, maybe to take the tone down a little bit from that... Um... <laughs> no, you want me to keep going? Well, 
maybe to flesh it out a little bit, if you take the view that um, architecture is simply there to serve a pure function, the physical function of the space, what it does to make sure that it works properly for the comings and goings. And if you look at this design of this pavilion, you'd have to say that it has been very well designed. And I know that in designing it, the project architects came out here and carefully observed how people used the pavilion, where they came from, how they came. And this is the most successful of the M Pavilion so far. It really uses the park in a beautiful way. It's visible from um, the street um, and it presents itself to the street in the way that others weren't. And the function of debate, which is really what this pavilion is about, works best in this one of all those so far. So if you take the view that architecture is simply for um, programmatic function, and Remkul has said that this building is a tool, then this is a really amazing design for a pavilion. However, if you take the view that architecture has uh, cultural responsibilities of some sort in the language that it represents, then this building is a total failure because it doesn't even attempt to do that, doesn't even address to do that, doesn't even attempt to begin to talk about the difficult, complex issues of what a cultural architecture is. And in Australia at the moment, the, um, the issues around uh, cultural heritage and the future of the longest living cultures in the world are, are pertinent. They're everywhere. And to ignore them, it's something that an international architect could very easily do, whereas a local architect may have been embarrassed to ignore them. Yeah, but uh, come on, you know, explain to me... The yes team. Yeah, I know, but no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm on the no team, so no to the last comment. Uh, because... You know, explain to me how Sean Godsell, a local architect... I'm sorry, Sean's an international any... architect. We no, all know no. that. Oh, come on. Explain to me how Sean Godsell's building said anything about the, the, the issues you just raised. It has nothing to do with whether you're from here or from there or this or that. I mean, at the end of the day, every one of us except for Sarah, and she's not even from Melbourne... Is an import. She's a colonist. So, she's a colonist. Well, no, she's from Tasmania, and she is part of this long tradition. But for you know, we're all bloody colonists. You know, 180 years after the founding of Melbourne, you know, how could you possibly imply that some are more readily local than something else? You know, I mean, 180 years is is a blink in 60,000 years of inhabitation on this continent. So we are less than the dot at the end of the Bible in terms of our presence here. And to say that, well, those who came 40 years ago are more authentic than those who came yesterday evening on a flight just makes no sense. Sarah, do you think that an Indigenous architect should design next year's pavilion? Yes. I mean, of course. Um, And that's conversations that I've... Well, I'm obviously working as um, M Pavilion's regional project manager. And it's a conversation that I've had before, but I think they're both programmed for the next two, so that's um, very unlikely to happen. Um, but, you know, if it does end in two years, or if there is a third one, wouldn't it not be great for the last one to be here that stays here permanently to be designed by, you know, a coalition of the willing? You know, we don't have any Bunrung or Wurundjeri architects. So in the sense that, you know, myself and Jifa, who practice here... We're both not from our country. I'm from Tasmania. Jeefa's from Wales and Gamilaroi, up in New South Wales. 
But I think to sort of pick up on the points that you guys have already been talking about, maybe the problem is with architecture in general. Maybe we're just not doing it right. So sorry. If you can, sorry. Sorry. You know, if you're going to say that, you know, what's the difference between someone coming off a plane yesterday and 40 years ago, I, I agree with that in the sense that we haven't been respectful to Indigenous cultures in architecture at all. If you look at this city, you wouldn't know Aboriginal people lived here unless you see a plaque, you know, here, there or somewhere else. The only building that you have is the William Barrack building, and that's a very contentious building. But actually, if you talk to the traditional owners, or some of them, because not all of them agree within their rights to do so, but some of them actually say, well, it's the only building in the city that actually represents Aboriginal people, and so we want more of that. Um, so, yes, I think... It would be great if you know, a coalition of Indigenous architects from around Australia did design the next M Pavilion because you would see the process and approach that goes into that as an exemplar model for how maybe we should be doing architecture differently. So I, think that's, can, can say, um, I think that's very true. It's not about that. In a, in a, in a way, it's, it's um, perhaps paid to a point earlier about the pavilion here. It's, it's a, architecture is a process of, of understanding where you build, what your context is, what the cultural context you build in. So perhaps in a way the criticism then, then towards the work that's been done here is the question whether there was enough engagement with the local context, was enough engagement with history, was enough engagement with the, I suppose, issues that we didn't, didn't look out for in the past. Um, in a way, that is the main criticism, I think, that we do apply to, to star architects. That's the main, main issue in a sense. We believe, um, rightly or wrongly, I think, um, that, is, that is pure brand architecture. So it's architecture that's been created overseas, designed overseas, with very, very um, little engagement in the local context and just been, been planted here. So I want to hand over to Nicole now because you came here working for Shop Architects and you've now decided to stay. And I'm curious to hear your opinion about the dialogue that's already ensued. And I also want to state too that Rem's um, concept about this pavilion was for debate. So we encourage uh, honest opinion and controversy. Uh, well, so before I came here, I was very curious to work in a city that purports to be the, the most livable city in the world. Uh, as I came from New York, which is potentially one of the most unlivable cities in the world, although that's up for debate as well, but it's certainly not an easy place to live. And, um, you know, I think just to kind of go back to the criticism of this pavilion, um, this, this pavilion wasn't um, briefed to be a representation of Aboriginal culture in Australia, and maybe that's a problem. Um, I think in general, uh, there's a, I get asked a lot, um, oh, do you, like, do you like Melbourne? What's it like to be here? Is it okay? How do you think there's a kind of insecurity about um, is Melbourne kind of keeping up in the world? And I think um, when architecture is at its best, it is the physical manifestation of the values of a people. And what we as the community of Melbourne, both international and local, need to be curators of those values and defend those values and to also embed those values into the requirements for everything that gets built into the built environment. And so... Uh, who decides what those values are? Sometimes it's the wrong people. Um, but, some, but we can push back on that and we have mechanisms in place in terms of design review in the city government and the office of the government, Architect of Victoria, and, and maybe those offices aren't powerful enough. Um, but, you know, I would love to see Melbourne 
really hold fast to those values and to push them farther so that no matter who comes into Melbourne to build here, you have to build to the values of this people. And maybe those values are about fairness or they're about quality of life or they're about quality of construction. Um, and sometimes those values aren't really present um, in, this, in the statutes of, of the city. So, you know, I think in New York, for better or for worse, nobody goes, oh, man, fucking John Nouvelle came in, built a French building in right in the middle of New York City. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> Because any building that gets built there is somehow a manifestation of the values of that city. And so those values are good and bad. They're about efficiency, and they're about greed, and they're about luxury, and they're changing over time. But the robustness of the culture of that place forces people to conform to that. For better or worse, you know, I don't think um, the proliferation of luxury in Manhattan is a, is a great thing, but it is the values of those people. And so, you know, I would have loved actually to have more on the building that we built here. It would have been great to have right from the outset more pushback from the city, essentially more pushback on our client as to what is appropriate to be built in Melbourne. How do we control quality of life? How do we make this building fairer? There's no affordable housing component in any of these towers. There's, no, there's very low sustainability standards um, comparatively, right, uh, Anyone who has a house here probably feels like it's made out of canvas. That's part of the problem. Um, So we have, as the curators of Melbourne, the ability to make anyone who wants to build here conform to what we want to do. We just have to step out and step up and make those rules unbreakable. So, Mark, is it fuck off international architects or do we want them to come here and push us into actually creating some brilliant architecture that's strong and actually stands up to our national identity? I mean, that's a tall order, isn't it, to ask someone to get off a plane and, um, and somehow um, embody all our values and, and culture in architecture. I mean, that's hard enough to do on you know um, when you're... You know, fundamentally of the place, let alone um, directly off a of Boeing. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think we've actually really talked about star architecture or, or star architects at all so far, uh, which maybe is for the best. Um, I mean, I think probably like everyone here, it's a, it's a, it's a problematic term, but I think it's one that's pretty, actually pretty simply defined. Um, it's an architect who is in a kind of fair weather orbit around the world, following the money and the clients and whatever kind of propaganda project, either private or, or governmental, that needs to be done, um, and they follow that fair weather orbit around the world from one um, um, shining, glorious moment in an economy to another. Is that and bad? No, um, not if you're a star architect. Perhaps, um, perhaps, the, perhaps the term is actually um, becomes problematic when it is the primary selection criteria. Well, I think that's. I think actually that's that's very close to the heart of the matter. Is that um, who invites the star architect, and um, and what the kind of procurement models are? So we could have a, qu- a conversation about procurement, which would get bureaucratic very quickly. Yes, let's um, do that. <laughs> um, but the, uh, maybe the other way of thinking about it is that, um, and, and I think actually th- maybe this goes is true for all of us, 
is that when you know when you arrive in a place, you, there's a kind of expectation for how you might behave that you should be a good guest, and I think. I think we've probably already established that those of us who've arrived in the last 200 years have been very poor guests, really, um, and, and have taken much more than we've, than we've given in a, in a lot of respects. Um, and I think that as we invite star architects into our country, and, and we are doing that um, um, every day now, and you know, there are mechanisms for doing that all over the world, so as we invite them, um, I think we should expect a lot from them. Um, great insight and epiphany and hard work and, and also um, serious engagement with um, the place that they're working in, as, as they would uh, in their own hometown. Um, I think if we think of them less as kind of competition and more as maybe new, new friends, we might be doing a bit better. So, you know, if we invited them over for a, for a get-together one night and they came over and drank all the beer and pissed on the rug and then went home in a black beamer afterwards... They'd be called Australians. Yeah. <laughs> we, might be, we might never invite them again. Um, no, or we'd hope they that they invite us over. They think you're mates because they do what you do. You go to different parties to me, actually. Um, well, I mean, no, I'm, I'm just... This is, this, is, this is the image of Australia, right? That you go That's the drink. ACDC image, yeah, which is actually pretty, uh, pretty amazing. You know, so it's a good import, actually, ACDC. The well, young you family know, were well, great. Well, I mean, import. but, you know, ACDC are like uh, star musicians. God damn it. They went out and conquered the fucking world. They played every place. They took money away from Americans and British and French. Ah, <laughs> oh, what a terrible thing. No, they're they heroes. They good music. I, I, this is why, I mean, I, f I find this a little bit trivial, the, the, the conversation, because it assumes that it's all about either image or reputation. It ha we haven't had a single word about good architecture, you know? And Jan starts his preamble by saying how wonderful this place is, but it's not nearly good enough. If it's a good piece of architecture, a good piece of architecture. I don't care if, you know, you know Rem Koolhaas made it, or uh, McBride, Charles Ryan made it, or even those guys ARM made it, or whatever, you know? John Doyle or Roland Snooks. I mean, you know... But hang on a second, because they actually care. So, like, when Jean Nouvelle came out here in 96 and was judging the um, Walls of New Zealand Award, he refused to walk into Story Hall saying, I'm not going in there. Yeah. When, when, um, when Peter Eisenman came out here yeah. in the early 80s, he said, Roy Ground's thing is junk. Yeah. And then when um, Coolhouse came out here only a few weeks ago, he said, forget history. So, like, if we're talking about the sort of quality and insight of the architectural critique, that's pretty thin on the ground coming from those guys. Well, you know, that, that's only because they happen to trot on your heroes, you know? No, I mean, I, I would, look, I would have the same argument with Jan's father, you know, who refuses to acknowledge <laughs> us, lab architecture, because we, didn't, we weren't under his wing, under his protective wing. So we've done it's one true. project in Australia down the road and never had a chance to do another one, you know? And it's not unpart of the situation that it's because we were not considered Australian enough, even after 20 years. So this, you know, 
if, if Jean Nouvel happens to dislike Story Hall, I don't think he's less of an architect. He has his prejudice, just like all of us do. He has his predilections, just like all of us do. I mean, again, you mentioned it before. I think the most interesting argument that we could have is about procurement and commissioning. Because at the end of the day, the way, you know, we can talk about the quality of something that's built. The question is, who gets to have the opportunity to build? And if it's a question about indigenous architecture, my biggest concern is about opportunity. At the end of the day, I don't know, and I know a couple like Jifa, I don't know any good indigenous architects. But the problem is they're not getting opportunities to become great. And my biggest concern is not about Bloody Star architects or the local gangs who are doing everything anyway. My biggest concern is how do we open up the ecology so we get more into it as opposed to it going down 10 or 7 or 8 lines of development, which is what Melbourne has become. Well, I'm not going to defend my father. He can do that quite well. Um, I will defend myself, though. Um, I didn't say this pavilion wasn't good enough. I said that um, it pertained to a particular view on architecture. And so my critique of it was about, um, about which particular view that a person might take about what was valuable in architecture. And this one does take a very particular view. And it's a, and it's a particularly... It's a view which is extremely um, transportable. It's a view which is globally applicable with ease. And if, um, if specificity is to become part of what architecture is, then um, this pavilion and its approach to architecture glides over the top of that. That was, my, that was the point about that. with the complex issues of people. If you think back to Rem's lecture, there was nothing in that about people. It was about post-human architecture. And so if you take out the human from the equation in the sense that, you know, what you're saying, if you have a specific criteria about what is good about architecture... If you take out humans, then anything will go forward. It becomes but, uh, that you, globalization. Yeah, it doesn't yes, become look at the work of, of, this of room happens to be full of people, yeah, and, and, people and that has, chose to be here today. Now, oh, but did you hear Rem's lecture? Yeah, I heard Rem's. I was there, but you know, the lecture is the lecture. I mean, the, we, if we're going to talk about the architecture, this is the consequence of a particular architectural response. It allows this huge array of people almost every bloody night to come here, sometimes several times a day, to come here and participate. It's open-ended. You can go in. You can go out. You can have a slight hierarchy between who's here and who's not here and who's up there and so on and so forth. But if we look at it between the two, three other interventions, it's not functionally successful, it's architecturally successful. But by what criteria? Ask them, ask them, because they're here. See, I'm, we ask I'm, Brendan, I'm quite because surprised. Brendan works here, and I was speaking to him about this before, I'm, and I would love to get his opinion on this. I'm very surprised to be talking about the pavilion here, when we have actually international architects and so-called star architects contributing to the fabric of the CBD. I would have thought that's much more relevant, perhaps, to discuss. Right? Or, or what's, the, what's the cost? If we have star architects practicing in the CBD, what's, what does it cost us? Well, let's, 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 let's go back to the question, what is good architecture in the sense? Which should actually then define how we criticize and how we analyze star architects or contributions by international architects. So if we look from, I mean, Melbourne is my chosen home, so I'm sort of re-engaging perhaps in an analytical level firstly. 
and then in, in look into how CD has grown over, over the years. And um, I understand the 80s, early 80s, under Rod, Rob Adams, the CD has, has shifted in terms of its focus on how the CBD wants to develop and how it should be developing. Um, You know, we go on about how wonderful Rob Adams is. He stole everything from Jan Gale and brought Jan Gale out here. Another star architect. He wasn't a star when he came here. Well, he's a bloody star now, and we keep bringing him back, telling us how good we are. Because we're doing it his way. Intellectual property issue is probably another issue. But uh, again, again, what is our expectation towards an international architecture? Is they're making a proposal for Collins Street that's perhaps 190 meters high. What is our expectation? And how are we going to analyze it? Why do we think it's good architecture, not, bad, not, not good architecture? And how are we going back to the point that you made earlier? How are we going to filter it, make sure it is relevant to Melbourne? But the 190-meter tower doesn't come from the architect. It comes from the commissioners. It comes from the people who pay for it and the people who legislate But the, but the star, this so-called star architect wouldn't be here for a two-story building. Unless it's a freestanding pavilion like this building. one, I guess. Well, I mean, that's, this building is an interesting case, um, and I'd like to pick up on Don's point in which he said that this pavilion is architecturally successful, and I think that you're exactly right. That is the um, criteria in which it is successful. But this is a particular um, commission. This um, commission, and in all of its instances, is almost purely architectural. Um, and if any particular design of the pavilion fails, it still continues um, in a way that most other buildings are not allowed to fail by their commissioners, which means that this is a site for architectural experimentation. Um, and it was set up to be so. This was a pavilion for architecture. And there isn't another building of this type. Arguably, the NGV's pavilion is in a similar vein, but that's within the context of the NGV, so it doesn't really work in the same way. This is pure architecture. And I can't help but think that um, a commission which is set up, which is now using large amounts of public money to continue its, um, its funding, that sets itself up as a site for experimentation in architecture to repeatedly invite in a closed um, commissioning process such um, already established architects to conduct experiments seems like an enormous missed opportunity. Okay, so going on from that point... Somebody else mentioned before the Sydney versus Melbourne dynamic and the nature of competitions. So in Sydney, they have competitions where there is an international architect, architect invited, there's an um, emerging architect who's invited and also an established architect. I would say that, you know, here in Melbourne, and it comes back to opportunity, that, you know, now there's such an influx of international architects and architects, that there seems to be less opportunity for emerging voices and opportunities for emerging practices to get an opportunity to contribute to architectural production in the city. What do we do about that? I would say that's a market-driven problem. Okay. So at a certain scale, if every building that you're doing is 170,000 square metres or more, there's only a handful of firms that can handle that. Bates, Woods, where I was working... Hassle, so on and so forth. Handle that. And wait, wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. Let me finish my point. There's only a, there's only a handful of firms that can handle the actual delivery of a project of that scale. But lab. But you were part. Were were you not? Were you not partnered with a local? Yeah. Yeah. 
So you were part, so there is an opportunity, if, if all these buildings are at this scale, there is an opportunity for emerging voices to partner with people who can deliver projects of that scale, but that also needs to be written into the brief and into the values of the people who are commissioning these projects. Um, the project that we worked on, uh, we partnered with a local, and you know, at, there, it doesn't need to be exclusionary. There also needs to be some kind of platforms for different scales of building to be built. I think if you look in the CBD, the fact that the vast majority of housing that's being built in the CBD are 70-story towers is a lar- an issue for all of us. It's an issue in terms of quality of housing, the quality of the city, the quality of the work that gets done, the quality of life of the people who live inside those towers. Um, that is bigger than just Oh, the little firm didn't get it. It's a, it, yeah. Do you want to finish what I'm thinking about? No, look, I, I, well, first of all, I, I, I think, again, one of the problems about commissioning or procurement is this naive assumption that uh, only certain people can do certain things. I mean, we've built five towers over 50 stories in China, but we can't get a two-story building in Melbourne. Now, we don't do all the documentation. We work with the LDIs. They do it. They do the site supervision. But it's a complete, total misunderstanding of what it takes to produce architecture to think there's only 10 firms in the world that can do certain things, so therefore they get all the certain things that come up every single time. The worst thing that I know is this EOI process that says you can't submit if you haven't already done the same bloody thing. This is, this is monoculture, the death of the kind of architectural ecology and such. And so, again, for me, it goes back to, you know, the, the powers that be being totally misdeceived about notions of risk and reward and systems that invariably... I mean, look, I am really glad that SHOP got an opportunity in Melbourne, you know. We invited Greg out, and it's fantastic. But that competition that you won was the most cynical competition in the last 10 years because it said, you know... CBUS went to the five major offices in Melbourne and said, we want to invite you to a major competition for a building in Collins Street. Could you go, please go find an international partner? Every single one of those, Hassels, Bates Smart, Fender Catsalides, uh, Woods Baggett, are international architects. So to tell them they're not international enough was an absurdity. The fact that they pick some good people like yourselves is to their credit, but it's a bastardization of the idea of what... They should have just said, we're going to pick some international people because we want some new ideas, we want some fresh ways of thinking, we want something that's never happened in Melbourne, and then we'll pick you, put you together with somebody that can deliver it. I think it would have been honest. So it was I, totally dishonest what look, they did. When you have a building that's being delivered by a superannuation fund at a bottom line for a luxury product, it is cynical. It is. But that doesn't mean that the model is necessarily flawed. But the idea of internationals partnering with locals and exchanging ideas and exchanging... They could have just been honest and said, we want some new ideas. That's a good, that's a good thing for any city. But to, 
you know, blanketed under this idea that, oh, you guys are good enough to just do the, 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 the construction drawings, but we want somebody international. When these, you know, I mean, this is what annoys me about this conversation as if poor old local Melbourne architects are huddling against the powers outside. Every one of them are fucking taking over China with their projects. And that's where all their profits come from, is their overseas work. They're the most inter- Australia is the most internationally uh, derived architectural culture in the world. Because we're so bloody small, the only place to make a profit is by expanding overseas. The percentage of Australian architects working overseas compared to American architects working overseas is greater in Australia. Um, can I just follow up on the idea of the procurement process? How do we change that? So one way that we change that is, because it's all very well for us architects to sit around and say, you know, someone's got to pin the, pin the, um, pin the, uh, the bell on the cat's neck. But one way that we can actually um, change the EOI process is to lead by example. So does anybody know of a commission going around which is sort of can, uh, architects can just be anointed to do it um, without any due process and we can then um, show that by experimenting that really good outcomes can still be achieved, like this one. And so that's, that's why this is such, uh, so disappointing, because this was an opportunity to show um, people that commission architects um, that there is value in architectural experimentation, and that opportunity was fundamentally missed. And can I claim that I have seen that, probably not down here, but in, in a European context, competitions are, are happening all the time. We have, have down here invited competitions in part there. They're paid competitions, and they do quite often go out to the usual suspects. So um, young architects, young practices just don't have a chance, as you, as you described before. Um, in Europe, we see, see that all the time. There's a culture of competition which is simply just looking for the best idea. So in order, order to change the procurement here, there's, there's, there's two factors to it. One is, one is certainly us reviewing or being part in the change and, and fostering the idea of, of literally competition to ourselves. And um, perhaps with hand-in-hand hand with, with the OV, OVGA and so forth. Um, but secondly, there's, a, there's a, the construction and building cultural issue which simply looks into risk mitigation every day of the week. So there's the, the maximizing of the return, one of the, the main topics, and an absolute avoidance of any risk whatsoever. Yeah, but uh, procuring the same people to do the same job does not eliminate risk. I know of a lot of well-known Australian architects that have done complete rubbish. So just because you are done it ten times before doesn't you don't mean... You have to convince me. Huh? <laughs> well, you know, so... so you know, that's clearly, you know, not the condition. I mean, you're right to say that, you know, there have, you know, competitions in Australia have gone from being open... Comp- I mean, we won Federation Square of an office of two people, you know, because it was an open competition. It was a design competition. Now, nowadays it's very difficult because it means that a lot of people expend a lot of time, energy, and money for one person being commissioned. So... Trying to be good to the profession means let's do EOI. So you don't have to do a design. You just have to show everything you've ever done, which means nobody that's never done it gets a, a chance. So the worst are the local authorities. You know, I mean, the, you know, the government, I have to say, is more likely to do an open or a broad competition than a local municipality. Again, because 
bureaucrats don't want to take the risk of a possibility of success. They want to feel like they can guarantee success by only making it possible for people who have already done it before to do it. And therefore, they can say, well, if it's bad, it's not my fault. They were all shown that they've done it before. It's a completely bad system that is engendering this repetitious condition of the same people getting the same job or assuming that, well, because these guys are foreign and they've got big names and huge websites and lots of hits, then they'll be okay. They both systems, locally produced, internationally produced, undermine the possibility of the future. Is it? Sorry. So then it, let's, let's stop being architects and complaining and start being proactive. What is the, what is the solution the to that? The needs to make the government open up, particularly at the local council level. It needs to provide the assurances to local councils that the OVGA will make, will make the decisions on who are appropriate people and to help guarantee to the local councils that they're not going to be held for the bag if it doesn't work out as good as everybody wants. So it's a, it's a statutory legislative problem. And to be fair to the Office of the Victorian Government Architect, they have been... Uh, they have been improving the procurement process in local governments, and it's a slow process. But if you, if you and that's the only way to actually improve it is slowly. And so they, they've they, tried, and they're fairly toothless. Um, but they're getting somewhere. Process. I mean, sorry for I'm, I, I should apologise for opening up this whole issue about procurement, which, which is something for for those of us who are involved in that process, it's a deeply felt and passionate issue. Um, but. Um, I mean, Don's absolutely right. The, the, the processes that, and the documents that we're seeing in front of us now are so deeply cynical and, um, and underline only maintaining the status quo and only affirming um, the, exi- the existing um, kind of heavy hitter practices, of which, you know, I'm one. Um, I mean, I think... That's you know, correct. To, just to be it's, it's all brutally, good to me. brutally be honest about that. Um, but even, even we find ourselves um, um, looking through documents and saying, we can't do this. So, you know, you, you, now it's very common to see you must have um, completed a project of this nature, let's say a $45 million library, um, in the last 36 months. The fact that it can take you up to seven years to complete that 45, 50, 60, 70 million dollar library seems to have escaped everyone's sense of the time-space continuum. So, like, there's a, there is a sort of a creeping tightening of what, of what those documents expect. Like, so, for example, I, was, I, I happened to give a procurement officer in Western Australia a bit of a fright this week when I gave them a call and a very aggressive serve about the documents that they had put out, which required a full open uh, tender and a full scheme. So they just said, oh, look, just give us some indicative plans and maybe just an indicative urban design response and, and some idea of the facades and a few renders and a PowerPoint presentation. And just some material selection. And just some idea of materials and the internal workings, just roughly how you think the spaces might interrelate. Nine, now, nine yeah, something like that. So what that means is that the, the local government is asking um, essentially the, the architectural industry to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in their, in their project in, in, a, in, a, in a project that is almost certainly rigged anyway. Um, but, I mean, I, I think the thing about this stuff is that... Ha- like, it doesn't go anywhere. 
Like we can have let's, this. Let's, let's move on. What's the solution? So, How would we move on? That, yeah, on that point, I think we can move on. But I think the actionable takeaway from all of us here is that somebody here needs to either go into politics or go into planning and change it so that architects can actually do architecture. All we should be inviting. Yeah, this is all we should be inviting star architects to sit on judging panels, <laughs> which is in part how Lab was awarded the commission at Federation Square. Um, it's how the Sydney Opera House uh, competition was awarded, and that building seems to be doing okay on the outside anyway. Um, <clears throat> like, it, none of these things... By the way, none of these things are new issues. So, like, when Frank Furness um, was a young man coming up, he would win every design competition, like, w- one after the other. He would just win them. Um, and then as he got a bit older and a bit, um, uh, and a bit more established, and there were some younger guys coming up, like, Louis Sullivan, who started winning a few competitions, he started eradicating the competitions. He started saying, we shouldn't be doing those competitions, that's a bad idea, it's bad for the industry, they're very expensive, we shouldn't be doing those competitions. And, and, and of course, he had his day in the end, and you know, the, the next generation came through. I mean, I think, you know, we, uh, I mean, what I, what I said before is, fuck off, we're full, but more is good. Like, I mean, a, a stra- Melbourne particularly is a, 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 funny, a funny town with streets that are too wide, with only five million, not even five million people at the arse end of the arse end of the world. And yet, and yet, we can maintain a lively and long and long-standing architectural culture and we can support, um, support an experimental and expressive architectural environment and we can also invite the best people in the world to come here and build carports. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> okay, so we've heard some for and against and it's all mixed up now. But I think maybe looking towards the audience a bit more is, and to you guys first off, is do we want star architects in Melbourne? So we've discussed the pros and cons of needing and what they can bring, but do we want... I think Mark just answered that question very eloquently. We've grown up enough to be able to take it. Well, I think also we should have the confidence. So, I mean, I think from from Desborough and Ear all the way through um, to Carey Lyon, we've we've spent a century building up um, a, a vibrant culture. We're now looking much further back, and I think, so. you could probably expand on this much more than I can, um, to a, a, a deeper history about what the, the roots of this land really, what this really represents. Um, but I think we can do both at once. We can, we can maintain that. And we should have the confidence to be able to compete on a world stage. And, I mean, I think that... Um, I, I think we are good enough to do that. And I think it would be strange to say we have these design excellence competitions but we're going to shut people out. Like that, that just sort of... It, it reeks of nationalism, to be frank. So, Does IRM do work in China? Uh, we've tried, but we're not good enough. But, <laughs> well, so, and do, does IRM export its um, business model to other countries at all? Um, not, not really, actually. It's, why not? Why, why aren't we exporting our, you know, I think successful case, and large design firms? I think in our case, um, we've had a sort of DCM-style purple patch for the last, you know, <laughs> 10 or 15 years and, and, and been busy. But I think broadly, Australia has had unprecedented growth since 1997. 
Like, and, and I think that's extraordinary. And I think we're, we're kind of have been all riding that wave. Everything's been good here, you know? Like, we've been building apartments that are truly shit, that get sold, you know, somewhere else, that are entirely for an economy and not a society. We've been just digging stuff out of the ground at a rate of knots. Like, it's been fabulous. We had the BER and the unfortunate pink bat scheme, so we survived the, the, um, the global financial crisis. Things have been good here. And so we do have the conditions to, you know, and the wealth to invite others. But sorry, sorry, hang on. Um, I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. I'm on a roll. Um, but, but what I want to know is what happens when, and, I, and I'm not whinging here, I'm just asking, you know, let's look in, for a minute into the future. What happens when 1987 rolls around again? What happens when we have the recession we have to have, when the bubble bursts? Um, uh, is, are, the, are the star architects going to kind of share the yoke with us? Uh, through the lean years, or are they going to be back onto that fair weather orbit? I just wanted to, in a way, amplify. I'm still here, I'm, I'm, I'm still here because I'm doing no work here. Uh, but to amplify that, one of your other directors... Uh, there are many. Yes, but uh, with Ian, I did a, a guest-edited issue of Architects Victoria and had a conversation with Ian. And I posed to him, see, everybody, you know, this whole sort of insecurity thing I find a bit strange because we've hosted numerous architects and architectural critics and theorists uh, at the University of Melbourne in the last two years, three years, three years. And almost invariably, once they're here for two or three days, which is part of the gig, they go wow, there's some really good stuff here. And the next question is, why don't I know about it? And so Ian's response to that question was, well, maybe we're just lazy. Because everybody else in the world is publishing as hard as they can. They're lecturing internationally. They're building their profile. So I think the question is not, should we condemn those people who have become well-known for being well-known, or should we be more self-condemnatory about why aren't we, if we think we're so good, why the fuck aren't we out there, and why can't you walk in to a school of architecture in Cincinnati and say, have you ever heard of ARM? They go, yeah, did you see that thing they did down there? Or have you ever heard of McBride Charles Ryan? Or have you ever heard of Minifee Van Skyke? Have you ever... You know, so, you know I, I, you know, I just think that maybe it's because you're just too bloody busy. The rest of the world struggles through cycles of a lot of work and no work. And for 25 years, you guys just had too much good stuff. So it's about time you got lean, mean, and aggressive and international. Because the work's international. I mean, this, this characterization, it's only international if it came outside of the border forces control, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, Dutton's perimeter that keeps everybody out somehow. The work is international, which is why so many architectural firms from Australia are as busy as they can be in China, Indonesia, Vietnam, and so forth. Any star architects in the audience? Here's one. <laughs> get, get out. <laughs> Since I'm sitting firm, I, since I was assigned to be in the yes camp, I will, I will 
make my yes an, a, a yes argument, which is I think we should flip the question around and ask not ask not what star architects can we can do for star no anyway <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> We should ask... That guy said... We, <laughs> president guy. We shouldn't be worried about what Starkitects are going to do to the city, but rather we should be asking, how can we make this work for us, right? Or how can Melbourne make this work for them in the sense that what an international architect really is, is a, these people that we're talking about, these quote-unquote Starkitects, they're divas, right? <laughs> they're, they're divas in the sense that they've become extremely famous for being very good at something. And they can come into any opera house or city and demand demand things. So one thing that these people can do, and this is, you know, I don't think that shop is a star architect, but we were an international architect. What we could do is we could say no very firmly and maybe say no with some aplomb and try to push a little bit harder than we might have been able to otherwise. And so I think there is an opportunity here to pu- for these people to push hard, to push harder on the industry. Does that mean that we've been their friends and they haven't been our friends in response? Have they been knowledge sharing or have they been kind of um, fostering the next generation? Do you think that they're taking more than they're giving or what do you think is the dynamic? Do I think that international architects are taking more from the city than they are giving? Is that the question? To the architectural profession. I don't know. What, what does it mean to take from the architectural profession? Well, uh, seeing opportunities and the, the projects that they have opportunities to, de- to develop or to contribute to versus... I don't know. I think a firm, if you take a firm like OMA, I think they're incredibly productive and they give a lot back. They give a lot back to the architectural discussion and the architectural community. And, you know, if you were raised in my generation of architecture, we learned through thinking like OMA. And they have produced through their system an entire generation of architects, for better or for worse, depending on how you think about it, um, an incredibly diverse and perverse body of architects who practice. So I think they do give a lot back, but I think we as a community or Melbourne shouldn't feel somehow victimized by these people, uh, but that they have an opportunity to push their profession farther and to make the city more interesting and to use the fame that they come with to push back on contractors, to push back on developers, to make the building technology industry more robust. Um, And in so doing, bring the entire level of practice in Melbourne up. Do you not think we give them an easy ride, though? I don't know if you, if any of you guys were at the lecture that Rem and David gave. The questions that were asked afterwards were fairly woeful. There's no critical debate about what was said. No one stood up and said, well, hold on, what are you talking about? That's what this is for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if you, if you were listening to him, I don't know if you were... Well, we also had a talk with Rem and David as part of the regional program the next day at M Pavilion, and we were talking to them and questioning them about, well, what, at what point do they take an ethical or a moral standpoint? And their response to that is, oh, no, hold on, the way we do research and the way we produce architecture is that we take all of the information that people give us, i.e. all of the data, all of the anything statistics they can find, and give that back in a graphical and pretty way. And people go, oh, this is amazing. I can't believe, like, how did you do this? And that, like, that's, quote, what David said. Um, but I think it's... But he's just like, well... But, but they never take a standpoint. And, you know, if you question them about... Um, you know, I questioned David about what he did say in the lecture and, you know, the, the validity of comparing the Netherlands to Australia and how you actually approach all of these things. And they don't... Like, he didn't have an answer. And he couldn't respond to that. 
I just, I think we give them too much of an easy ride. I think we put them on a pedestal and we go, oh, it's, it's OMA, they must be amazing. But where's the critical debate? Where are we questioning them and going... There, there just isn't one. It's, it's, it's a brand. You, you're getting a brand, you're getting a product, and you know at that point in time where you go into the shop what the product is going to be. And is it an easy ride? I think it absolutely is. is. Are we all very clear about that? I think we are. So it's just a question, I think, do you, do you just accept that? Or do you try to establish a, a critical structure that allows assessment and, and revisiting as part of a design process? On that note, we're going to put out the... <laughs> See, I don't even have to state anything and he just puts his hand up. Questions to the audience, from the audience. Uh, I've, got, I've got two questions. Is there a Union Jack hidden in the Federation Square facade? <laughs> and um, why isn't one of the metro stations being named and stuffed and designed by Aboriginal people? Well, I can answer one of those. Uh, the second one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, there's no Union Jack because I have no interest in England. Uh, <laughs> and th there's no insignias in the, in the facade. I'll let somebody else answer the second one. Uh, not as environment as I'm aware. I have no idea who's designing any of the stations. So if someone can tell me, that'd be great. I think actually, just to add to that point, and maybe to try and stop this from happening, whenever anybody works on a project in, uh, of late, particularly in Melbourne, and sort of gets to the last minute of the project and someone goes, oh, have we, have we consulted Indigenous people? Have we, have we factored that in? And in the last two weeks before the project goes on site, someone goes, oh, shit. Um, and then they call up one of the Indigenous architects that are practising And then there's actually no possible time for a meaningful engagement. It is very much a tick box. So I hope whoever is designing those stations actually collaborates with Indigenous architects, designers, landscape architects, all of these people, because they exist, um, to, to create some sort of outcome and stop going, oh, shit, we didn't think about it. Oh, we better do it at the end. Oh, just make sure it's fine. Because it, you should be doing it from the beginning. You should be actually talking to traditional owners from the beginning because you're digging really deep into those grounds. There's a lot of existing waterways. And, you know, the way that we classify culturally sensitive places in Victoria is anything within 200 metres of a waterway. Um, and so, But also, not all of those waterways are actually listed on those maps. And anything that sort of... You know, if you look at the University of Melbourne site, there's a river there that doesn't exist anymore, yet you're going to take down the level of that precinct back down to the original ground level, but no cultural heritage management plan would be required because it's such a disturbed site and there's no river there now. So there's a lot of problems in the way that we do things and there's a lot of things that we need to change and address. And I know that's not what your question was, but I wanted to get that out there. I might have a crack at responding at number two there. Uh, I worked on the Melbourne Metro PPP on the competition phase and um, the question that you've asked was just not part of the brief. So it's, it goes back to the question of procurement, how documents are being written, how they're being considered, and what they allow for. And, and unfortunately, it just, just wasn't part of it. Yeah? And all the teams could have, could have chosen, obviously, to investigate their design in a particular manner. And, um, but again, it wasn't part of the procurement in the first place. I think the attitudes are changing in Victoria. You know, people are becoming more socially conscious, particularly architects. But we need to do it better. Like, I mean, we've been saying tonight we need to do the procurement process. All of these things need to be better. And we need to make sure that this is one of those things that we do better. Because everything we build in this country is built on Aboriginal land. Can't deny that. And it's so easy. It should be so straightforward. Okay, we have another audience question. 
I love the idea that um, buildings in a city should manifest the values of that city. And, and maybe they do. Maybe they reflect the fact that market is king. It definitely seems to be the case in this city. It's probably the case in this whole country. And so maybe we actually, maybe Rem identified a blind spot in our country's psyche. You know, he ignored a whole section of what this country is about, but he actually picked up on a point that, you know, maybe this country is about, you know, the market and the, the value. And that's something fundamentally wrong with this country. But as much as I like the idea that buildings... Um, reflect the values of their city, it's probably as true as saying a government reflects the values of its people. Yeah, it does to a point, but there's so much stuff going on in the background, and I think the same could be said for, for Melbourne, its buildings, and its culture. Um, I'm not sure really where the question is in that, but maybe you can reflect on that thought and where, you know, how can we identify these blind spots and where can we um, uh, prosecute them better both as architects? Where's, where's the leadership, I guess, maybe is the question from the architectural community. And, and, and Jan, just quickly, you know, if we go back to 1987, then maybe us young folk out here can afford a, a house when it all goes pop. Well, we weren't born then. Stop eating avocado. Um. <clears throat> oh, wait now, please. Come on. Let's not open the avocado debate. Um, <clears throat> the idea of a, uh, a set of values which must be reflected sounds appealing, but it's also frightening. And it, it sounds to me also like the set of um, criteria that you have to tick in order to demonstrate that you're ready to become an Australian citizen. Um, I think that that's, um, you know, as a singular concept, is actually a very dangerous idea. I think what is more productive is for everything that we do, and we're architects, so let's say that we're talking about architecture, to be a site for the contestation of values, because values are not singular, they are contested. And that's why um, I always place a vote for architecture to be a thing which um, makes a position and makes a step in a certain direction about values, not reflecting the values that are there, but actually saying, this is my position, so that the next thing can say, this is my position, etc., etc. But what if we don't have a history of, say, valuing Aboriginal opinions in architecture or, or the fact that all the buildings are built on Aboriginal land, all of these sorts of things? Is that, are there not certain things that we should be putting forward in a criteria as a baseline of this is what you have to do? And yes, it is at danger of becoming a tick box, but there's got to be some things that are important in our value system that we include in a this is how we operate as architects. The only way that I can think to, um, to productively do that is to recognise when designing things that Indigenous cultures are living cultures, the longest living cultures in the world. And so when um, reflecting on and respecting what has gone before, we must at the same time be uh, building the present of Indigenous cultures and the future of them as well. And building um, the future of anything and living in the present of anything does not rely solely on respecting what has gone before. It's a combination of that and investing in the current values and projecting what values should be. Because to, to, um, to say that anything that is built can only um, be respectful to what is there before produces stasis. Well, I think also we, um, we tend to... As, as architects, we like the idea of the solution and that we somehow have found... We've found an answer and, and it meets our clients' needs and then we've built that and we can, we can kind of move on. Um, and I think 
really the, the things that we've been talking about today are much more about a kind of questioning and acknowledging that the things that we do are, are, are happening on contested ground in contested political territory. And so the idea that we have a sort of a single... Um, um, a, a single identity or that we somehow some, uh, create a summation of our values, which I don't think that you were, you were arguing for. But, I, I mean, I think that we, rather than trying for that, rather than even saying... Because that, that would be a kind of pretty boring straitjacket for all of us if one, you know, one of you guys found, ah, oh, that's, that's our culture and now we can just roll that out over and over and over and over ad infinitum and we might as well roll over into our graves now because it's all done and dusted. Um, in fact, we, we find ways forward through questioning, um, through questioning our, our broader culture, through ourselves, through our practice, um, and, and the practice of others as well, um, which is why forums like this are so important. Uh, I don't have a I don't have an answer to your to your question, but I you know what you said about government is uh, you're right on the money. I think there's a parallel quote from an American founding father, and I can't remember who, but it's something along the lines of, my greatest fear is this country will get not the government it wants, but the government it deserves. Uh, Slightly prophetic. And I think uh, there are two sides to that. It is both what's happening in the United States right now, it's both the government that the United States deserves, because that is in some senses the manifestation of the values of that people, Um, but it is also not the government that that country deserves and actually the ideals of that country and the best natures of that country deserve something a lot better and those two conflicting things both what we deserve and what we ought to have and what would be the best will always be at odds with each other in the United States in Australia both politically and architecturally and it's up to us all of us to somehow enshrine through our sheer doggedness the better values in statute, really. And we, it's going to be a debate. It's always going to be a debate. And there's never going to be a fixed goalpost where we actually, okay, we've got it. We've got the right zoning code that's going to make Melbourne perfect and fair and everything's going to be great. But it has to be a continually evolving document or register of the Isn't that where the, the statute is the kind of the, the last refuge? It's like the lowest common denominator it's like shit we couldn't get it right in our hearts so we had to write it down on a piece of paper and go that that thing you got to do that instead of saying no actually we need a kind of fundamental um um, change in our values so australia has had great growth since 1997 but we've also had a kind of um almost equal and opposite sort of social alienation going on at the same time where we've progressively made it harder and harder for people to come here, where we've had increasing, like so many places around the world, increasing difference between the wealthy and the poor, like because, because actually we've written on our hearts ourselves mm. and not our, our community. I think this is, it's funny, this is kind of a fun, fundamental, maybe a fundamental difference between Americans and, and Australians. Americans are like constitution people. We have a document, we wrote it down, these are the rules, and this is what we're going to stick to. And Australia... No more she'll be right. Sorry? No more she'll be right. <laughs> That's our Bill of Rights, isn't it? Mark? Right. <laughs> the Bill of she'll be right. <laughs> it was written by Sheila. But because Australia kind of comes... I, this is a nascent theory that I have, but comes out of a precedent-based system where you kind of document 
sort of through precedent what we think. Yeah, it's an ongoing, it's evolving what, beast. Yeah. yeah, and I actually think sort of like the yes vote, even if we have said in our hearts that we approve, there is a lot of meaning to actually putting that down into law. And I think actually codifying what the values of these peop- of this people is in the building code or in the city charter or whatever it is that we have to do to control this um, is meaningful. And it means that everyone has to play by the same rules and it, me- it actually could potentially depoliticize the process of building because everyone is held to the same standard and not one capricious... Why would we want to depoliticize it? I mean, part of the... the the politicisation of it is part of what's interesting about it. But is it better for the city? But doesn't that make us fundamentalists? If we write down a doctrine or a constitution about how we should practice architecture and everyone has to follow it and everyone uses it like the Bible, you know, the dangers of religion and the connotation of all these sorts of things, if we do that, then we never move forward. We museumify who we are, who we think we are right now and we never actually change and we never move forward and then we're fighting ourselves the whole time see it as a document that the principles of writing things down in an agreed way is that the act of sitting down together and deciding how we should behave and act is incredibly valuable and the only way to actually prevent that becoming a tool for stasis is to enshrine in that process a, a, a mechanism by which it can be continually updated so the process of getting together and deciding what it is has to continue infinitum but does it uh it, it like it can do in documents like that, but there are. But as soon as you create the document, then you create a struggle around that, as can be seen in America with the Second Amendment. You know, it's an amendment, but it now cannot be amended. But and that's the great thing about it: struggle, struggle triggers change. And and just last last three course of year, we've, we've probably all have understood how much struggle there probably is, and it has triggered change. And um, writing things down, yes, does does probably set out certain certain rules for us, and we probably question how we do certain things, but adapting and changing over years is, is critical in order for us to, to get things even, even further right. We have one more question up the back, and then we'll do a bit of a wrap-up. Um, I guess I'd like to widen this question probably more than it should be. It's already gone off track quite a bit. <laughs> but, um, I, I think for me, like listening to this discussion and the idea of a star architect and everything, pretty much fundamentally comes down to the idea of elitism and an architectural elite, which Don mentioned in his speech. Um, And I think elitism is something that spans architecture so broadly disregarding the idea of the star architect or the international architect. So it's the idea of like um, what country you're from might mean you're a better architect or a better Um, a more well-educated architect. Even within Australia, what university you go to determines, um, well, like, people have preconceptions about what type of architect you're interested in or where you want to practice. Um, Down to the idea of, like, I'm a recent graduate and thinking about the future and jobs and everything and the fact that uh, certain firms have a name plays a big role in many people's decisions in uh, making, like, taking the first steps in their career path. And the fact that you could kind of like fuck off to the Netherlands and work at OMA doing absolute shit for several years and come back and walk straight into a job at RMIT teaching like second year university studio um, is absolutely fucking outrageous. So, so it's just that idea of like no, you know, when you remove... It was your- a little bit too close to the truth. <laughs> 
my point. So when you remove yourself from a culture that you're wishing to practice in, you kind of, um, in a way, you remove your worth or maybe what your worth stands for. You can practice overseas. You can come back and you can talk up whatever the hell it was you were doing over there for two years with a name. Um, and I think, yeah, for me, this conversation or maybe things that we need to talk about more in architecture is elitism and how to kind of combat it. Because even within Melbourne, which firm you pick or, you know, what projects you're working on within your firm, it comes down to the finest grain of elitism. And I, I think this is something we never really talk about. But are you going to be the elite or am I going to be the elite? Uh, you're the elite. Okay. Uh, so just can, can I? Can I? Oh yeah, that's right. Because we're here. We are the elite. Because we're here and you're not. Uh, so question. I didn't hear the quick question. I heard the question. So I just want to ask you, who's your favorite band? Oh, can I please pass? No, no. Just tell me. It's too contentious. Huh? Answer the question. The Beatles. Okay. Now, are they elite? They sold a lot of bloody records. Everybody talks about them. Everybody knows them, even I mean, if they died a million years different. ago. I think if we're talking about this idea of procurement, like the Beatles... Somebody procured them and decided to give them a recording contract or not. Totally, but I Somebody think decided to promote them, put them on a world tour. Somebody made films about them, let them make films. Somebody keeps that. reissuing the catalog. I think can I, can I the cut one... In? Perhaps, perhaps it's more productive to talk about what the opposite of the elite is and um, to then invest in that, whether or not... We can have a debate initially about whether there is an elite or not, but the opposite of the elite, of there being an elite, whether we think there is one or there isn't, is to invest in a meritocracy. And to a certain degree, exactly. larger degree, I would argue, we do live in a meritocracy. But there are plenty of examples where um, you know, certain sets of things get prioritised above others for various reasons, to do with cultural cringe, to do with um, people uh, who have power because they were given it by virtue of their gender, race, colour, etc. But the only way to counter that is to actually invest continually in a meritocracy. So I, I think off the back of the meritocracy idea, there actually is a uh, common denominator. There's a great leveller. Um, in all these situations, no matter where you've worked or what school you went to, can you think and do you have a good portfolio? Um, and I think you can actually, if you're, I think anyone on this stage can sit across from anybody in any situation, look at their work and have a conversation with them and determine very quickly, can you think and do you have a good, do you have good work or did you just luck out and get in somewhere great? I think, you know, where I thought you were going somewhere different with the idea of elitism, which is not who practices architecture, who is allowed to practice architecture, but who does it serve and who, does, who can't get in at all to the practice, who can't start a firm, who can't get into the school in the first place, who can't get into OMA because they don't have the opportunity, mobility um, in the oh. first place. Uh, and I think that, you know... We should hold people to high standards no matter where they've worked. But the more important question is how inclusive is our profession and how, what is that elitism? Yeah, I think I would probably argue that maybe something that's underexplored is that we have a shitload of autonomy and I just don't think architects are using it in terms of like advocating for certain uh, roles or people or 
um, widening their practices. I, th I think uh, we're in a situation of power or we're coming to a situation of power and um, perhaps it's not being used in the best possible way. We should just eliminate ego from architecture. If we can do that, we'll be fine. We can, but I'm doing it first. Because the profession. <laughs> oh, and then? I think it's... Um, I think it's, um, it's actually very hopeful that you um, feel that way um, because I think so many of us feel like architects ha have less agency um, over time and not and not that we are coming into a position of advocacy and power. So, I, I mean, I think I'm very, I'm very heartened to, to hear you say that, even as I feel my own heart sink. <laughs> On that note... <laughs> we might um, wrap up, but I just want to say a huge thank you to each of the speakers for contributing to this evening's discussion or debate or, you know, the questioning. I think the most important part of what process is, is about constantly questioning what it is we're doing in practice, what, I, what is design, what it means for each generation coming into architectural practice. Um, and kind of um, projecting new ways forward as to kind of what we can consider in the future. And I think that element of hope and um, potential new way of looking at autonomy and agency is something that's been kind of debated recently. Um, and I think that it's been really rich and robust discourse, which has been really great. And I think that it's been under the right um, canopy or pavilion to kind of do that. And I think that... Carport. Carport. Uh, sorry, carport. <laughs> <laughs> the carport <laughs> um, and I thank you all very much for coming out on a Wednesday to um, join into the debate and um, yeah huge thank you to M Pavilion I think it was a we initially thought that this topic might be a bit too controversial and they were like no nah, you're fine go with it um, which was really great actually because I think that process in itself is meant to be on the pulse of architectural discourse in Melbourne and we're trying to do that by tapping into those conversations that you guys have on the side. So it's always good to hear what you guys think about this sort of format, the panellists, you know, how you could be contributing more. I think it's meant to be a vehicle for that. Um, and we're coming into some really exciting new ventures in 2018. Um, and this is the first of one of those is to actually explore at being at a venue outside of Loopa. And we thank Loop for everything. And, um, yeah, we've got some great initiatives and collaborations too. So I think that I, ho I say this at the end of a lot of process um, events, but I hope that everybody here has a type of actionable takeaway in which they can kind of deliver in their, in their own lives and architectural behaviour as to what they've, um, you know, heard about tonight, whether it be about questioning, whether it be about going into politics or whether it is about going for working for a star architect. So I think that, um, yeah, it's been really wonderful. So thank you very much and thank you very much for coming along. And um, if you want to stay around for a drink, more than welcome. Um, and, yes, here's to 2018. Thank you. Thank you.